look back at the data breaches of 2010 can tell us quite a bit about what to expect in 2011. Hackers are getting more sophisticated, and criminal networks are taking advantage of security gaps afforded by cross-border fraud. According to the Identity Theft Resource Center, 2010's data breaches prove that a national call for mandatory breach notification must be part of regulators' plans in 2011. Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. I'm here today with Linda Foley, co-founder of the ITRC, a nonprofit organization established to support victims of identity theft. Linda, most of today's financial fraud has a link to ID theft, but could you tell us how the ITRC views the link between data breaches and identity theft? It's very difficult to pin the problem directly just on data breaches. Um, financial fraud can occur in so many different ways, including lost and stolen wallets, um, information taken out of your mailboxes, that's the low-tech side, um, people with skimmers, um, where you're using credit cards or debit cards right in the shop itself um, or ATMs or payment processors where you're sliding your card through something like at the gas station. There are sometimes ways of calling them a breach and sometimes we can't. We've been seeing communities that have been having problems, but we can't say what the company is that's causing the breach so it doesn't get on the breach list. So I would say it's a mixed bag. Now, 2010 saw a number of data breaches from those that hit financial institutions and merchants to those that compromised medical records. The ITRC tracked 662 breaches in 2010, which was an increase from 2009. What do the trends tell us, Linda, and what can we expect to see in 2011? Um, in 2010, the Health and Human Services were mandated to put on a public website all breaches that affected more than 500 individuals. Because of those, media were digging deeper and we saw more articles that gave us the information we needed to add those compromised medical records, which may include social security numbers or billing information, onto our breach list. Our breach list in 2010 was larger because there were more breaches reported in some cases to states that have public websites. So I'm not sure that there were more breaches. My guess is there probably is. The point is that we're not seeing what the total number of breaches are, nor will we ever. So it's an educated guess based on understanding the crime of identity theft and thieves. And Linda, this may be a question that would also require an educated guest, and that would be, did we see an improvement in security measures that were put in place to prevent breaches from 2009 to 2010? Or from your perspective, do you think that we've stagnated? I think we saw a little of both. I think that because of red flag regulations, because of regulations put out by high tech, there have been more security measures put into place. The problem is that we're still seeing apathy. And that apathy is, oh gee, this is just another thing I have to do at work. They're not explaining it to their employees in such a way that their employees are embracing the idea of doing these security measures. So if you say such and such documents must be shredded, and there's a shredder down the hallway, they may still put it in the trash because it's easier because they don't understand 
the importance of following through with in-house policies. And how do businesses or financial institutions address that type of apathy? I think it's important that, number one, um, when we're talking about best practices, that businesses need to identify where their weak areas are and what security measures need to be taken, even if they're already in place. Then second, to document it into a written policy that is then shared with every single person in that company, from the CEO all the way down the line to the receptionist and any of the support personnel, even if some of those security measures don't affect those people. So that they understand that this is what our company expects. This is the level of security. I think we are seeing more security measures, but we're also seeing that once they are put into place, companies are not monitoring to make sure there's continued regulation of those particular measures. Now, in the financial space, 2010 was the so-called year of corporate account takeovers where fraudsters, either through a hack, a phishing attack, or some other socially engineered method, illegally gained login credentials for businesses' online bank accounts, and then they subsequently drained those accounts via ACH fraud. What progress, if any, Linda, do you expect to see in the way of security improvements aimed at fighting those types of attacks? These corporate account takeovers, basically what is happening is that thieves are siphoning money out of companies. They're writing checks with company's name on the top of it and getting money payments and using those to pay for things that they are indeed purchasing themselves, not for the company. Unfortunately, checking account takeover and the electronic draining of money is not something that we've found any ways to prevent successfully yet. And that is the next area, it's the next um, target and way we're going to be, what we're going to be hearing about. Um, unfortunately, with credit cards, it goes through payment processing and we can stop it all because it is the cohesive payment system where they can immediately say, wait, that credit card is not good or you don't have authorization for that card. We don't have that with checking. We don't have that with electronic banking right now. And criminals are taking advantage of the electronic banking system right now. Now, moving from the financial industry, Linda, to the healthcare industry, the ITRC notes that healthcare is a sweet spot for breaches. But the healthcare industry has been kind of held to the flames, if you will, required to notify the public when a breach occurs. What can other industries learn from the precedents set in the healthcare space? I think it's more negative learning. Um, unfortunately, the healthcare industry has been very reticent to make any changes in secure, improving security measures. You know, it's been a struggle just to get them to ask for secondary ID when people provide a insurance card, so that they don't, so that they can find out whether it's still an insurance card or not. We've heard of situations where a person presents an insurance card and they say, can we see an ID? And then, oh, it's out in the car and they never come back in. That starts with the stolen wallets again. So it is a sweet spot. We have a lot of people who have access to information within the healthcare industry about every single patient that that doctor treats or that particular facility treats. And they're not 
segmenting their computer systems so that it is a need to know only about certain information. The nurses don't need to see social security numbers. The doctors don't need to see it. It could be a segmented section apart from the medical records. And that's what industries can learn from the healthcare industry. Unfortunately, no one is learning that at this moment. We're across the board. When we see data on the move, when we see people getting in on an insider, being able to breach a system, it's because they can see everything with a very low password or um, security status. So would you say, Linda, that if we were to look at the healthcare space, would you say that security measures have improved there, or would you say that it's basically just the fact that they've been separating things out? I mean, that could be an improvement in and of itself. I don't think the healthcare industry has made any improvements, to be quite honest. They have fought against red flag compliance, which I don't understand why they've fought against it. It's for their in their best interest. Um, it's not that difficult. It's establishing written policies, educating employees, and then following through. We see in the news every day that people are looking into files of patients, maybe not for the purpose of identity theft, but because of curiosity. They want to see why such and such person is in the hospital or what they're being treated for or something. I'm not necessarily seeing improvement in that area. And again, as you've noted, perhaps in the healthcare space, that's a good place to start because there could be a lot of opportunity there just as in the financial space to breach information. Correct. And in many cases more because you have more people that have hands-on access. Right now, the healthcare industry is paper-oriented. The financial services industry is electronic-oriented as far as how they are holding records. And so they've made a few more advancements. Correct. Now, you note, Linda, and of course this is based on the reporting that the ITRC has published, um, that breaches remain vastly underreported. Would you say most of the underreporting is coming from the financial side where corporate account takeovers and card-related fraud are concerned, or is it across the board? Actually, on the financial side, we're seeing probably more reporting of actual numbers, especially when it was card-related, because they knew how many cards needed to be replaced. They have to have a forensic IT person go in, audit the system, take a look, and then a forensic accountant go through the system and see how many people or records may have been affected. And those are two different items. When we say that there's been such and such number of records that have been potentially compromised, that's not people. Those are records that to be a checking account, a savings account, a money market account. The financial field every year has been the number one field in terms of the least amount of breaches. However, when there is a breach, we're looking at large numbers. Now, the ITRC notes that approximately 200 breaches, 29% of the 662 that were reported in 2010, came from mandatory reporting states. How many states have mandatory reporting, Linda, and what seems to be keeping the federal government from pushing a national notification mandate? Well, 46 states currently have mandatory reporting, but only three or four have public websites where the public can see the notices that have come into the state attorney general's office. And that's where those 200 breaches are that we found out about 
that were nowhere in the media, no one would have known about it if those states of New Hampshire, Maryland, Vermont, and Wisconsin had not had a public website. The reason we're not seeing a federal government website is simply because legislation has not yet moved to that. They have not even moved to a data breach legislation itself on a national level. Um, it is in the works. I think Senator Feinstein's bill is well written. There's been a lot of arguing back and forth as far as what should be included, what should not be included and such. And it would be easier for every single business in the country if there was a single place, a single notifier that they have to send information to rather than across the board to 50 different AGs. You mentioned 46 states have these mandatory reporting policies, but not all of them have these public websites. So then how are they notifying consumers when a breach occurs? They notify them by a letter, and that's what the mandatory notifi notification laws typically require is that the breached company notify the individuals that may be at risk. Now, there's a couple of talking points in different state laws. Some of them include a phrase called risk of harm. And it's up to the individual company to determine were these records at risk of harm or not. And it's not something that's easily measurable. And it's like asking the fox to, get, to protect the hen house. The other problem is that in some states, it's only certain entities that must report to that state. So it doesn't cover everything. And that's why we want one notification list. And then you send a letter to this specific government agency. And then our goal is to have that government agency post the information so that the public has the opportunity to see what is going on and find out the information for myself. Giving the power back to the consumer. Correct. And I think that's important for law enforcement very similar to other types of crimes, there are patterns. And some of these hackers have a pattern of going from one business to another, going to different states to do their skimming with ATMs or with gas stations. And these are patterns that federal law enforcement agencies can study. And this is why they're cracking these large cases. But it's based on merchants or the companies that have been breached letting the FBI or the Secret Service know, you know, there's something going on in our county and we can't figure out what's going on. Can you come in and help us? Now, I want to go back for a moment, Linda, to the types of breaches, and you've talked a little bit about this, but let's go ahead and highlight some of the things that have come out of some of the research that the ITRC has done over the last year. Of the breaches recorded by the ITRC, malicious attacks accounted for the most breaches, more so than even human error. In fact, 17.1% of the breaches related to hacking and 15.4% related to insider theft. The ITRC expects those breaches to increase in 2011 as scams become more prevalent on social networking sites via smartphones and other mobile devices. What's the connection, Linda, between social networking sites and cyber attacks as well as insider risks? And how will those things impact the financial industry, the medical space, and government in the coming year? This is the second year in a row that we've seen malicious attacks account for more breaches than human error. And I would love to see that human error number go down to 0% because those are avoidable. 
accidental posting data that's been put onto a laptop and then lost. The insider theft is a very dangerous place. This is dangerous water here because as we're looking at more organized crime doing this hacking because they have the people who know the technology. What they may be doing is planting someone in an area where they have access to different codes, where they would have access to information. And then they may be hacking from inside even. We don't know. Every expert in identity theft says insider theft is going to become more and more prevalent. But getting information via cyber attacks is going to be the next target area due to the lack of security. And what about the social networking sites, the component there? Is that also part of the problem because sites like Facebook and Twitter, for instance, don't necessarily have the security in place that they need to? Um, You know, when we're talking about social networking, we don't see a lot of businesses using social networking to keep in touch with their customers other than as a marketing tool. But this is on individuals to be aware of what they put on their social networking sites that understanding it's permanent, number one, that a friend may not be the person that they say they are at all. You never put anything personal on your Facebook page or um, any of your social networking sites that can be then profiled and put together with other information that they get from your Twitters and your tweets about, oh yeah, um, I got a new puppy, my puppy's name is such and such. Well, guess what, that probably becomes a password eventually. Now, you talked quite a bit about the need for more education when it comes to employees. And I wanted to ask you, Linda, about the steps that businesses, especially banks and credit unions, should be taking. What more should they be doing when it comes to ensuring that fraud does not infiltrate systems in the first place? And does a lot of that just tie back to the customer education as well as the employee education? If we're talking about hacking problems and keeping the network and the servers safe. That means that the IT department, the chief privacy officer, and the other executives within the company all have to be on the same page. They have to fund those security departments. It's not enough to put in, have one person keep putting in all the patches and keep your IT up to date because there are patches that need to be installed. You need to have someone monitoring your systems 24 hours a day to look for spikes in activity that may indicate a hacker, which is what these forensic IT people are finding is, four months ago you had an abnormal spike. That's when the fraud occurred. That's when the breach occurred. And then they go back to see what number was used to get into that system. That is an area we cannot afford to cut back on. We need to invest in. And finally, Linda, as we look out to 2011 and some of the identity theft trends that we've talked about during this call, what would you pin as being the top three to five areas industries and agencies involved with banking, healthcare, and government should be mindful of? I think as collaborative partners in this fight against identity theft that the five industries and agencies involved, banking, healthcare, government, military, business and education all have to understand they have relationships with customers and that when they send out bills, when they send out notices, 
this is a good time to remind people of potential scams that may be occurring. The banking community can be mindful of as they see someone coming in and doing unusually large withdrawals to bring in a senior person and just ask, you know, me ask what this is about. Well, I'm buying a car, okay. I understand. You know, I hope that works out really great for you. Or um, I've won the lottery and I'm sending it to them, especially if they're writing, asking for it to be converted to a money order. So they can be doing scam awareness right there and then. And that was a pilot program that was done here in San Diego very successfully. The credit unions and banks in the area put up charts talking about what are the most common scams. And while people are standing in line, they're reading them. Hospitals need to have privacy notices posted so that people are mindful that if someone asks you this question, that's not a question they should be asking. And what about in the government space? Uh, in the government space, again, you know, the most interaction people have within the government space is the IRS and the Social um, Security Administration. The Social Security Administration once a year sends out your statement of working benefits. If they seem abnormally high this year, that may mean someone else is working as you as well. So don't just take that mail that we get, glance at it and go, oh, too much to read. The IRS, again, will be putting out notices. The FBI is going to be putting out notices. The Attorney General, the Federal Trade Commission, nonprofits who all work in this area will be looking to see what is the newest scam and notifying the public. And what we've seen is public apathy. And I think they've seen these alerts before and they think they apply to someone else and not to them. So they become less responsive. And I really do believe that public service announcements are possibly one of the ways to go. So we have to be aware of how to educate the public and what sources we use to get their attention. Linda, I'd like to thank you again for your time today. Thank you. Again, we've just heard from Linda Foley, co-founder of the Identity Theft Resource Center, which was established in 1999. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.